This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You said that. You thought that Kim Kardashian was going to be president someday. Why do you think she will be president? Well, I think that right now, would uh, she picks up her cell phone, she could hit 200 million people. I think that whether it's Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump, when people see somebody, they get very comfortable with somebody in their living room every day, they are more apt to want to root for them. I think that around the world, you know, or the country, people can relate to her because she has every component. Interracial marriage, LGBT is in her family, female, she doesn't drink, she does, you know, a lot of these other things, she's already played in the political field in some way or another. I think there's no question in my mind that in eight years, she'd probably be able to reach 600 million people with her cell phone. And I think that she could be president. It's so many people out there that refer to themselves as bosses. I've done it myself from time to time. Being a boss is a state of mind. But how many of us are a boss in terms of how we operate and an actual boss in our professional lives? Answer, today's guest is... He started a clothing company in his mother's house that has since gone on to amass six billion in sales worldwide. He's a New York Times bestselling author, a hip hop head who creatively and inventively figured out a way to make hip hop fashion a part of mass culture. He's a shark, like for real. Uh, he's one of the most inspiring business minds in America. You've seen him all up in the videos, but also on the longtime hit show Shark Tank. What I'm really trying to say is, Damon John, today's guest on Jamel Hill's Unbothered, can a sister borrow $5? Now I'm just playing, unless you're going to give it to me. So do me a favor, uh, Damon. Uh, I've never met a Hype Williams, all right? I know that's your man's, maybe one day, but please give him my best because... He played a role in my wedding, actually, and he didn't even know it. Um, we did, uh, me and my husband, we did our wedding video. We recreated the intro scene of Belly. That was the wedding video. You recreated the intro scene of you know, Belly? They, yeah, Belly. Don't worry, nobody got shot. Like, we didn't do that part. <laughs> oh, okay. But just how visually it looked. Thanks. Same song, all that, but it was us getting ready for the day, you know, the day of that we got married or whatever. It was like, it, this was Hype Williams inspired. I'll show it to you. Because I think it was kind of dope, if I do say so myself. Dopamine <laughs> and Belly, was, they were playing um, How do you want it? And they were going through the yeah. tunnel. And they were going through the, the tunnel. Club, the tunnel, yeah. Correct. And their eyes were all like, uh, the, the lights were... We did the same thing. Blowing their eyes out and uh-huh. stuff like that. Wow. We did the same that's, that's actually sexy. Got that vision there. Had vision. That's so really good. He unintended. I will, I will tell Hype. Please tell him that he was the inspiration. He's a recluse. He likes to hide under rocks. <laughs> Does he really? Then he comes out sometimes and shoots a video or a commercial. Well, speaking <laughs> of videos, can, and I have forgotten you were in this video until my husband actually reminded me, because uh, he's a big fan of yours. He's read some of your books. And um, your fatty girl appearance. <laughs> no, no, Fatty Girl was my video. Everybody, that was your video. Yeah, every, I'm sorry. Everybody not, else, like, everybody yes, else everybody was, was on yes, your... Yeah, I had a cowbell. Because Fubu put out an album, correct? Fubu put out an yeah. album and actually went gold. Yeah. Yeah, and we had on there uh, on the album, we released the song Lights, Camera, Action by Mr. Cheese. Mm-hmm, and I then remember. Fatty Girl, of course, with Ludacris, Keith Murray, and LL Cool J. Um, well, Damon, well, it was Damon John. And then it was Ludacris, Keith Murray, and LL Cool J. <laughs> you put your name first. <laughs> you made sure to put your name first, right? I paid for the album. That's right. Your name should go yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. Who pays the most, saves the most. 
in other words, but I crack up looking at this video and then seeing you now. It's just like <laughs> it's, it feels like so night and day, even though being on the music video scene, that was. No, I, I still play myself. I still will go to a video and do one. I mean, because this weekend uh, they were sh I, I was out here, but they were shooting Fat Joe and um, somebody else. But I was going to go out there. Oh, yeah. So yeah. why um, why did you? Because I've I've read you or I've heard you say this story a, a few times. So you know, for those who maybe don't know this, but you kind of got your start, I guess, if you will, by kind of hanging around musicians and being on the music video scene. So how did that develop? Well, you know, I grew up in Hollis Queens, and in Hollis Queens, there are like a large, large amount of music artists and rappers come from that little square four miles. You got Run, LL. Yeah, Run, LL, Salt and Pepper. Salt well, Run Pepper. MC, LL, Salt and Pepper, Tribe Called Quest, Ja Rule, 50 Cents, Lost Boys, back when we were growing up, Spider D, Young MC, um, Dr. Dre and Ed Lover, and just so many people came Somebody, something must have been in the water there. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't know if it's in the water. You know what I think it is? I think that when uh, the same ha thing happened in Mount Vernon and the same thing happened in Compton, I think when... What happens is when kids see that there's another way to to be able to be successful and enjoy life, and you see one artist come out of there, then all the friends become the DJs, the bodyguards, and the producers, and the stylists, and they start to, and you know, me and Hype and Irv, we all grew in the same area. I think it influences kids to go out there and do different. You never, did you ever think about being a rapper yourself? No. <laughs> no, because I, I I couldn't rap. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, at least you at least but, you knew that. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I, I could break dance, and I remember that I did go on a um, competition um, because I was on those tours, and Houdini was going to take me on tour, offered me a role on tour at 16 years old, and uh, I told my mother I was going to go on tour, and she politely said, "Go to your room and finish your homework." Um, and a kid out of um, kid out of Atlanta, this kid named Jermaine Dupree, took my position on the Houdini tour. <laughs> well, I'm sure now you don't think, where would I have gone had I gone on that tour? Or, or how would it worked out? Because I, I think it probably worked out pretty well, yeah. you know, for you at, at this point. Not that it didn't obviously work out for Jermaine Dupree. So at what point did you start to think that you wanted to get into clothing? I love clothing. Uh, and I was the kid who at 10 or 11 or 12 couldn't go out and we would wait for, you know, rap music wasn't being played at all. But it would only come on around 11 or 12 o'clock uh, at night on a show called Mr. Magic Show Friday nights. So we would all stay up just to watch it. And I would clean my sneakers and, and do stuff like that. And that was around 10 or 11 years old. I wouldn't realize till 20 years old that I could match my love of fashion with my love of music. I really didn't realize that. I just wanted to dress at that time. But at 20 years old, I realized, I realized wait a minute, you know, everybody says do something you love. But I never realized that I could put hip hop with fashion, put it together. Mm. So um, when you started to kind of have this idea, at least from what you've said and what I've read as well, is like your mom played a really big role in kind of getting you off the ground. Um, talk about what she did and how she kind of helped this initial seed turn into a full-fledged. Mom inspired me in, in various different things that I've done in life. And I wouldn't realize that until I was 30 years old that actually... Everything that she did, I replicated later on because, you know, as most kids, my kids don't listen to me. I'm the dumbest man on the planet. You don't realize what, you, what they're doing. But when I decided to make a couple of hats because I felt that uh, a certain culture was being ignored and I made FUBU, she showed me how to sew these hats, you know, um, because she knew how to make clothes here and there because we were just poor and she would make her own clothes. And uh, she did that. And. You know, she she would um, go more help mortgage the house once I had all these orders. She helped me. She helped me through a lot of my my life at that time, and still even till today. Mm -hmm. So, how did you come up with the name Fubu? I kept hearing rumors, and there it's actually a rumor now, but that all these designers didn't want African Americans or hip hop kids or rappers wearing their clothes. And I said, "Who's ever going to love and value the market that they're 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 servicing and providing?" And I I came up with Forest Bias and. A lot of people would think it would be about purely a color, and it wasn't because if it was about only a color, then I'd be uh, be the same bigot that I was fighting against. I didn't care if you were like I would address MC Search at the time or Beastie Boys or Eminem today, right? Um, but I came up for as bias as a 
as somebody valuing this culture. So uh, LL Cool J was the the first rapper that you had to wear FUBU, is that correct? The first rapper in a major way? In a major way, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the first rappers to wear it was, I or artists, is that um, a woman named Miss Jones had put it in her video, and then Brand Nubian, um, Old Dirty Bastard, Method Man. Those are not small-time rappers, by the way. <laughs> You're like, oh. But they were small-time men. Right, yeah. Miss Jones, I don't think ever, you know, uh, she's a dear friend of mine. I don't think she really went on to do many more songs, but, um, you know. Yeah. So how did you convince LL to to wear FUBU? You know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I here's what I did. I had about 50, I had money for 50 shirts. Once I, I, I started putting, like, I had 10 shirts at first. I put them all in videos. I had money for 50 shirts. I took the 50 shirts and I put them on the biggest guys I knew. Because I knew that if I gave, gave them to the skinny kids, the fashionable kids, they'd wear it once or twice and throw it away. But the big guys had little options, right? They, they either had to go to Rochester, big and tall, and they'd have a big white shirt, a big black shirt, or a custom-made piece that costs a lot. I kept putting it on these guys. These guys ended up being the bodyguards. They ended up being the guys in front of the red rope. They, you know, and... Um, um, and they would wear it 10 times a month instead of one time. And L and all those artists started to see these guys and then said, yo, what am I, chopped liver? I'd be like, no, well, you ain't going to give me no love. And they were like, no, 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 I'll give you love. Nah, you ain't going to give me no love. And that's how I initially started getting on on all the artists. Now, didn't you, like, I read that you stood outside of his his trailer or someplace and, like, literally. I stood outside of his house for six hours. Um, six hours. <laughs> you were a determined person. Well, I had, I mean, the, the the you know, down the block was the coldest 40 dogs in the neighborhood. I just kept going back down the block and getting another 40, me and my friends, and sitting outside. And uh, we saw a big black limousine pull up. We knew he had to leave sooner or later. And he came outside, and I um I just begged him to take a picture for me, and he did. He was like, you know what? You're determined. Um, you're, uh, you know, if you ever get anywhere, and you probably won't, take care of me. And um, he took a shot for me. So did LL become an in, actually become an investor in Fubu or no? Yes, he did become yes. one. That's and what L, I thought he and, did. And L, we uh, we feed, you know we 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 all made a lot of money together, and <laughs> we we're very happy about that. So I mean, this is a, a big part of what you do is finding companies, obviously with their success on on Shark uh, Shark Tank, um, finding things to invest in. As you look at with today's media age and today's business world. Um, what do you see are the kind of typical mistakes a lot of young entrepreneurs make these days? You know, I don't think it's a, a mistake that um, young entrepreneurs don't always make. Um, they want to grow too fast. So just like me and everybody else, you know, instead of having one or two shirts like Kevin Plank, one, one shirt in one specific area, they want 10 shirts, right? Or they want... Um, to get a bigger retail space, sort of cases, so and then they end up getting more, uh, investing more inventory. That's one thing that uh, that they yeah, they do. Uh, also, they take in money too soon. They take in uh, instead of making the mistakes small and learning and saying, okay, well, this didn't work out. This did work out. Uh, you know, I'm I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna just keep working this thing for five years or whatever the case is. They take in two hundred thousand dollars for fifty percent of the company. And then let's say the good example is you blow up. Well, then you're going to need a million more dollars or two million more dollars to keep running the company. Well, I just gave you 200000 for 50%. I'm not giving up my, my uh, equity. Now you got to give up more, right? Instead of just growing the company as much as you could and instead of taking 200000 for 50%, you take 200000 and guarantee somebody 250 on their money. And, and give up zero because you know that you can turn the money. So those are usually the things that are uh, the biggest mistakes. Was it hard for you to be patient as you were kind of making your way with, you know, FUBU and some of your other ventures? Uh, yes and no. So first of all, it was, uh, it was extremely hard if I realized where I was going to be in my life now because it took forever. But it wasn't hard because I never thought I'd be here. <laughs> I was just messing around, making shirts and... Being able to go to video sets and feeling like I had a purpose and and feeling like I was so happy to see other people wearing my clothes that I would have done it for free for the rest of my life if I could have. So you had never, when you were starting out and even in the in the process, you were never envisioning FUBU as this like worldwide company? You were more or less like, I'm just happy with 
these you know, when, successes. I, when, I, when I started out, first of all, um, all my friends, if you ever see the movie Belly, all my friends were the kids that they made the movie Belly about. They were all drug dealers and things of that nature, and I wasn't. And at that time, being a male making clothing, you were considered gay. I'm not gay, I don't have it, but I don't have any issue with anybody who is, right? Um, so all my friends alienated me. Um, clothing was the only people prior to me that I am aware of is called Kanai and Cross Colors who influenced me, but other than that, clothing wasn't a place that you can make money or you were cool. So I did it because I really just loved to do it. And I was hoping that I, maybe my best scenario would be I would get a little, I would have a little boutique in Hollis, Queens. You've, uh, you've said before that you kind of, or you have a specific theory about the idea of a big break, right? That you sort of believe, um, and I'm just paraphrasing here, you can certainly explain it in better detail. You sort of believe that success is determined by a series of things that happen. Yeah. Um, just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, well, success is is is, uh, is a domino effect of various different things happening. But that's when people say, "Is there such a thing as luck?" And no, there's not luck. There's, you know, preparation. You know, and desire meets opportunity. You know, I've seen a lot of people in whether my company or other companies or in the world say, "I can't get a break," but the break is sitting in front of them every single minute. But they're not taking action. Because they haven't negotiated with themselves on what really needs to happen for them to get somewhere, right? And so my opportunities came in various different forms, right? Um, the fact that I could take 10 shirts for two years and keep putting them on wrappers and taking them back because I had access to video sets, right? Um, because I was young enough, I didn't have a family and I was able to work 20 hours a day and put that work in because I that was it. You know, I didn't I didn't have anything, you know, that was my asset. It wasn't a liability, it was an asset. You know, the fact that I go to the Mag Show, got $300,000 in orders. Other people say, well, I can't make the orders. No, I got the orders first. Let me figure this out after that. I mean, so it's, it's always these breaks, you know, that, that happen. And if you're looking at life as the glass, glass is half full, you're gonna recognize the breaks. I, uh, I once did an interview with Magic Johnson and I always, people that are very successful in business, of course, we always hear about your successes. I'm more sometimes curious about the failures. And just because I think, you you know, you can learn something from those things. And Magic told me this story about how when he was young kid, when he was coming into the NBA draft, there were two shoe companies that came to his living room, one of which was Converse, which at the time, people said, remember, this is the late 70s and Converse was that thing, right? yeah. yeah. And it was another company called Nike mm -hmm. that nobody had ever heard of that was small and fledgling. And, you know, they were still trying to make their way. Uh, Phil Knight, obviously. And so Nike told him, hey, we can't offer you probably as much as some others can, but we can give you stock. We can give you a lot of stock. And Magic said, he was like, I don't know shit about stock. I'm from the hood. So he's like, I wanted my money right then. Yeah. So, of course, he went with Converse because they paid more money. Of course. And he was like, every time he passes a Nike store, he just sick to his stomach because of the amount of stock that they were offering. And I put it like this. He'd be over that billion or at that billion now had he, had he taken him up on it. I say all that to say what are some of the things that maybe you missed out on that you look at now? Like, do you have one of those in your, you know, business portfolio where you're just like, why did not <clears throat> invest in this or do I happen, this? I happen to have plenty of those, but the only difference in having plenty of those is I was, when I had the opportunity for those, I wasn't Magic Johnson in a position where companies were giving me that offer. So I didn't invest in Uber. I didn't invest in various things. However, I get pitched literally over 2,000 companies a year. Right. And all the ones I didn't invest in, trust me, there's a lot that I, if I would have, I would have went to zero. So I never had that option. You're talking about magic being somebody who's in the draft and getting an opportunity like that. And I, I can see where his, his, his issue lies in that one, but I never had that issue. So even, um, you know, because you get pitched so much, is it a little mentally taxing? Because after you start hearing the same thing over and over, is it hard to then say, okay, I really need to lock in because this sounds like a good idea? Like, what's that process like for you? I say no to everything. <laughs> you say no to everything? I do. I, you know, I've learned from Warren Buffett uh, only recently, probably the last three years, that really successful people say no to almost everything. Um, because I need to, listen, if, if I want to really lock in, I can bring back FUBU to some extent. 
I own, I own the company, right? So um, I say no to almost everything at this moment. Yeah, because when I'm on Shark Tank, that's different. Right. You know, I, I, and that's I have part to, of the show, right? I have yeah. to absorb twelve to fifteen companies. If I wasn't on Shark Tank, I'd probably look at probably about three or four uh, a year new companies. But I say no to cold pitches because you know these these you know business has to be built. I mean, it's a lot of work. So that doesn't mean that I don't invest in companies. But when I send my money over to uh, the New York Stock Exchange and put it in a Tesla. You know, it, it grows, and I don't have to. I don't have to help with anything. You know, they don't call me for any advice. <laughs> so at this point, you're looking for, you know, kind of that setup where like it doesn't require you having to, you know, come to a meeting or yeah. do something. Time is the only thing you can't get back. Mm. And a lot of times, you know, it's funny. You want to invest money in the company, but then they need they need uh, ten hours from you a week. I mean, what is more valuable in my time, the ten hours or the money? Of those pitches, those thousands of pitches that you hear, what percentage of them are truly awful? The the ones that are awful are the ones who don't realize it's awful because they don't have any proof of concept. They don't have any sales like you have on the show. That's all we always ask sales. And they say, well, here's my idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what I need you to, you know, I need you to help me. And I go, well, I had six ideas this morning. Why would I help you with yours? That'll shut them down. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like, no, but you don't understand. Like, this idea is different. My worm farm will go global. I'll be like, okay, I, got, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and you never know. It could be some money in worm farms. Um, you have your fifth book that's coming out in March, Power Shift. Um, your last two were bestsellers. Yes. Right? So yes, a little, bit, little pressure on you. <laughs> I'm the only shark to have best-selling books. The only one. Mm, what does that mean to you? Well, besides me being the shark with the top investment in Shark Tank history, Bombas, mm -hmm. besides me being the youngest shark and the coolest shark, the the fact that I have two New York Times bestselling books just means, you know, I don't like to talk about the other sharks in a negative way, but they're losers. I mean, if you really think about that, <laughs> they have almost nothing on me, right. nothing. So what is Power Shift? Um, what's sort of the central idea in this book? Power Shift is the ability to, uh, you know, listen, everybody, uh, you know, like I said, I get pitched 2,000 things a year, but on Shark Tank, I've seen over 1,000 pitches, and in real life, I've seen almost over 10,000 pitches. And people believe that negotiation is the key to what you're going to get in life, right? You know, the only difference between, you know, you, me, or other people is what we have negotiated on our way up the ladder or what we fail to negotiate. But negotiation doesn't mean it needs to be the transactional action that when you're sitting across the table. Negotiation starts way before then. It starts when you've a built of influence. Then there's the negotiation and where the value when it all comes from is nurturing the relationship afterwards. And you may say, well, how did I build influence? I just ran into Damon John in the elevator, I had 90 second pitch, so how do I build influence there? You build influence by what you had put on social media for the last five years because in the event that I like you, in the 90 seconds that I saw you in the elevator, I'm gonna pull up your name and or your Instagram when I leave. And I'm gonna see on that Instagram, I'm gonna see things that either make me go, I cannot wait to be in this person's life or this person's add value to my life or this person's husband or wife is a racist, and this person must think like that. This person's always putting out social media between 9 to 5. However, they don't work in the social media department at their company. And this person said they're an activist and all this great stuff, and they're not. Right? So due diligence starts there, right? And a lot of people don't understand how to build this influence prior and then negotiate and then get the benefit off of what they're doing. And I think that's why it's important for me to put the book out. Uh, it, it seems I've always thought it's a difference between uh, building that influence you're talking about mentorship and sponsorship. A lot of people blur mentorship and sponsorship and dealing with somebody who's extremely busy like yourself that... Uh, I've told a lot of young people this is like, it's okay if you just get to the point. If you just want me to put in a word for you for an internship or to do this, get to the point. Like, you don't need to create this false, you know, idea of what this is because right. I'd much rather get to the point because I got shit to do. Right. right, right, right. And, and even in mentorship, they have a habit, I think, of looking for people. It's okay to want to emulate somebody's career. Like, if somebody wants to be Damon John, that's fine. Find your origin story. They can see how you did things. But, 
a lot of times the best mentors are people that are not necessarily at the highest level of what they want to do. 100%. Yeah. Totally agree with you because you have access to them. Sometimes other people you don't have access. But the most important thing I think about with mentors is, and I always say this to kids, is what's in it for the mentor? You know, uh, you know, there's, you know, when you walk up to a mentor and say, "Well, I need help because of this, and I need to do this, I need that," fine, I got my own damn problems, right? What's in it for the mentor, right? So maybe you know, like I use this example often, but it's real. You know, listen, I love saving, you know, animals, and uh, if you came over to me and and one kid came over and said, "I need help this and that, this and that," if you give me an hour worth of work a week, you know, I, I would really love it. I'd be like, okay, fine. Another kid came on to me and said, I'm going to donate two to three to four hours at, at a local shelter, um, and I'm going to help these animals. And in return, can you give me just an hour a week or a half an hour phone call? But I'm going to do this because I know this is a passion of yours. I don't want any money. I don't necessarily need any money. Um, so what's in it for the mentor? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that because you were starting off a company that was non-traditional, and especially considering the space that you were in, what was it like for you um, as FUBU got more popular and more successful going into, you know, spaces that were non-hip-hop spaces that basically when you're talking to them white people, like what were those experiences? When I'm talking to the white people? Yeah, what were those experiences mm -hmm. like, especially you as a young entrepreneur coming from a non-traditional background? Some were fascinated, you know, most thought uh, that we were a joke and we were, you know, here today and gone tomorrow. Um, I remember, you know, at that time I, I was wearing a lot of jewelry because I was happy that I had money. And some of my distributors are white. And I remember a guy came in to pitch us for an advertising campaign and pitched a $5 million campaign. And I came in the room and he looks at me and he goes, man, oh, look at all that jewelry. They must pay you a lot around here. And my white distributors stood up and said, the meeting's over. And he said, why? He said, uh, you just told the boss that I guess you think because we're white, he works for you. So you just told the boss that uh, he's basically an employee. Get out of here. So, you know, I had that a lot of times. Um, but, but you know what? <clears throat> Again, I'm the ultimate optimistic person. The ones that I walked in the room with that I found value in was the ones that found value in me. They basically said, you're servicing a market that we don't know. And if we knew any better, you wouldn't be here. We want to hear what you have to say, what you're delivering. And just tell us how we can make ourselves better, you know? So I've had both sides of it, you know? I've had clothing stores who said, there's four black guys on the hang tag, and this is obviously a gang, and we need the hang tags to be cut off. And I'm I'm not being, I'm not joking. And they're like, we don't want these type of people in our store because we don't want shootouts in our store. <clears throat> I mean, I, I've never been in a store with somebody like, yo, you got a 34? Yo, break yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm never heard. I was you know, like, really? You know, I got a 32. You know, like, <laughs> you know, that's a double X. Give me that green. I've never heard of that. Right. You know, um, so I've dealt with a lot of ignorance, but I've also dealt with a lot of people who valued the community we were serving, valued my thought process, and said, "Yeah, listen, the only, the only, the only color we care about here in the business is called green, and we're gonna make it together." I've always been fascinated by if companies say like Gucci or. Um, these other ones uh, that have become so popular in, in urban spaces that if they even understand what that means or for that matter that they the, the cultural influence they could have. And in thinking about that, I'm thinking about how was it not too long ago that Gucci made the tragic mistake with the blackface. Right, right. I'm, I'm wondering how does that still happen in these? Well, you got to understand. Um a global brand hits a lot of people, and even FUBU, it's worn in various different countries, various different ways, and you can't touch everybody and know every single culture all the time. And I'm not trying to defend anybody, but, you know, Gucci, who probably makes, you know, 3,000 styles a year, and, and they're probably in, you know, 80 different countries, um, you don't necessarily know who came up with that imagery, and that imagery could have been off of African art. It could have been off of various different things, and the way it was put through the system, I think that it went through various different channels, and people just didn't get it. I mean, it's just what it is. You know, it's like when you go to Japan. I, I went to Japan one time, and I saw the kids wearing blackface. <clears throat> now, you perceive that as something negative, but it was the Japanese kids who were wearing New York Knicks jerseys, breakdancing, wearing blackface because they wanted to emulate blacks because... They valued blacks, and that was their way of emulating them. So I, I can see the, the chain of, of command being broken down from some little designer in Europe or someplace else who may not have understood the 
the challenges with it. Were you ever, or did you ever feel any pressure? Like you talked about those that particular experience that you had, um, you know, with the the person who thought you were the employee and not the boss. Did you ever feel any uh, pressure to change to sort of fit into more of corporate uh, culture? Even though this is your business, obviously. But did you ever feel that, like, you know, maybe I have to dial back? Maybe I I shouldn't wear so much jewelry or anything like that. Did you ever go through that? No, I never went through that from a perspective of I've always been proud of who I am. I've never tried to fit in. The only time that I thought I shouldn't wear more jewelry is when I felt stupid about it. It's when I, I remember I was in Colorado and I was in a room and I think uh, in the room was people like Buffett and Gates and all these type of people, you know, and I'm excited about my, you know, $200,000 medallion I got on. And these guys were looking like they just rolled out of bed. Yeah. Bill Gates looks like a science teacher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these guys were rolling. And then I remember hearing, you know, the funny thing is when you hear wealth, you, you hear hood people talking in hood. I'm not talking about black, any color. They talk about how much they, they spent on their houses or on parties and stuff like that. And when you're in a room with billionaires, they talk about how much they gave away this year. Um, so I started to understand that, listen, you're never going to have, you know, a bigger wallet than anybody. And I'm walking around, you know, showing my $200,000 chain and, you know, this guy owns a, a island, you know. Um, and I just realized that, you know, listen, if Mark Cuban woke up with my money, he cut his wrist and jump out the window. If Jeff Bezos woke up with Mark Cuban's money, he would cut his wrist and jump out of the window, right? So I realized at some point in time that, you know, you can't, that, that's just fronting, you know what I mean? And and wearing a big chain, it's uncomfortable. I'm a little guy. <laughs> it's a little heavier. It hurts the back of my neck and all kind of stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's such an old man statement. <laughs> huh? Like it hurts my neck. This it hurts chain. my neck. <laughs> well, um, well, you often hear that, like a lot of people who really have money are much more understated than we think. But I think, you know, I'm sure you went through that phase of um, not just with jewelry where uh, you, you know, made some probably big dollar purchases just because it might have made you feel good. I made it rain for about five years. Did you really? On everything. That's impressive. I, I made it rain on everything I could buy. What's the most money you've ever spent in a strip club? I wasn't talking about a strip club. What's wrong with oh, you? Oh, you said made it rain. I thought you meant a strip club. You pig. I'm talking about in general. <laughs> oh, my bad. Sorry. When you said make it rain, I thought that's universally no, understood. No, no, no. That's I'm talking strip about, you know, buy houses, okay. cars. Okay. I've been to a strip club once or twice. Once or twice? Last week. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Um, we're going to take a quick break. I want to talk to you about a couple things, um, especially about the generational wealth gap um, and the racial wealth gap as well, because I'd be curious to hear your your thoughts. And I have some fun questions for you. Sure. Some really fun questions that will force you to make some tough decisions. So, really? Um, oh, yes. All right. That's right. You, look, you're Mr. Shark Tank, okay? So... I have a feeling that this game is right up your alley. So <laughs> we'll talk about that in your career, Red Lobster, as well. More with Damon John when we come back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We were talking before the break about some of the, the purchases you made when you were younger that, you know, you wouldn't obviously necessarily make uh, now. What do you teach your children about money? How do you teach them about finances? I told my children and my wife um, that I want us to read uh, another financial book every year. Because even me, I'm still um, getting educated on finance. And, you, you know, you always find something new and different way to do it. I actually am um, implementing it with my staff, too, that we're all going to read a new financial book every year. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, my, my ex-wife really raised my, my daughters really well. Um, but it's challenging, you know, because, you know, I was at the point one time when I remember saying to my daughter, listen, and I got a 27-year-old, I got a 21-year-old, I got a 3-year-old, right? All girls. And I remember saying, 
you work on you, you work enough and they're hard workers and i was like if you put in whatever money you put in i'll match it i initially was going to match anything that they would give me towards the end of the year um so i they built up a nice amount of money doing that and i said you want a car you put in all the money i'll match it and i remember one, a friend of mine said something really amazing to me he said I know you want to teach her financial intelligence about matching the money. He said, but do you want your daughter riding around in a piece of shit car? Or do you want her riding around in the safest car ever? Because in case she gets in an accident, you want your daughter's life to be saved instead of she had to penny pinch. So it's 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 a balance, right? Um, but I try to teach them financial intelligence, and, I, and, I, and we read books together. Now, is it hard to kind of... Um, because you you have such a a persona, you know, you're on a very successful show. You're a successful author, successful businessman. Um, is it hard to sort of teach them more conservative financial values, given that you know you clearly, I mean, you make a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? It is and it isn't because they see the downsizing. They saw the downsizing in the homes. They see that I live a very humble life. Um, and I put in the work doing it because they're only going to follow what I do, not what I say. Um, have they seen a lot of opulence? Yes. Uh, are they way better off than most people? Absolutely. Um, but you know, I believe they, you know, I believe that if you give somebody everything, you make them the poorest person in the world. My daughters know that I'm leaving them absolutely zero when I die. Really? Why is that? Well, I earned it. That's not their money. <laughs> so you go, are you going to give it all away? I don't know yet, but I'm not giving them shit. <laughs> really? I'm not giving them anything. How did they receive this information? <laughs> they didn't have a problem with it, you know, because of, at first, you know, when they were 15 or something, they hear it, they go, I don't want nothing from you. Well, I hope that you feel like that because you ain't getting shit from me. <laughs> and the reason why is for various different reasons. Um... um because first of all, I don't want a man in their life going, I want to marry this woman because when dad croaks, we'll be all right. I also want them to understand that. And you know, and there's a lot of people that I uh, study, Buffett and Gates, they have uh, dedicated to leaving their kids zero. I believe that after I give my kid up to a college education, that's it. Mm. They're on their own. I've given you all the things that you need. Mm. Well, I guess technically, if they got married now while you were still alive, a dude could still come into life and say, you know. Say what? Well, they could, well, they'd have to get a prenup, presumably, obviously. But I'm He just, couldn't do anything. I mean, because after the first couple of weeks in Dayton, he'd be like, yo, well, where's the Maserati dad got? And they'd be like, well, dad ain't fucking with me like that. And they'd be like, he'd be like, oh, man, shit, let me move on. He gonna find out quick. Well, you, I mean, this is one of your other things. You, you talked about the power of being broke before. Yeah. And I imagine as a parent, it's kind of hard because you know what being broke taught you. Being broke taught me a lot as well. But your kids, they're not going to experience that. So True, and that's the hardest thing, too. I can't give my kids adversity. Mm -hmm. And having girls is way different than having boys. Am I going to let my daughter be homeless? No, that's not going to happen. But she's definitely not going to be, you know, burkened out and, you know, staying in Greece all summer long. I have no idea. I get on Instagram. How are those people in Greece all year all, all year long? I want to be in Greece all year long. I want to be in Greece all year long, <laughs> right. too. I look on there. I'd be like, God damn. Well, it, it, it leads to something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so based off data from the Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finance, the typical black family has only 10 cents for every dollar held by a typical white family. Um, there's been a lot of conversation. I'm sorry, ten cents. Ten cents for every dollar held by the typical white family. Wow, mm -hmm. I, that is that staggering. Is a huge gap. Oh so God. from you know pre civil rights, even during the civil rights um, you know movement, the racial wealth gap looks worse now than it did. 50, 60 years ago, um, and the amount of generational wealth being passed down. Um, from, you know, obviously fam one family to another, one generation to another looks just really astoundingly awful. So I'm just wondering, as somebody who's in, you know, the business that you're in, and you're just talking about how <laughs> you literally leave your daughter's nothing, is that what, I don't know if it's a question of like, what's happening there? What aren't we doing? Or is this just still kind of the byproduct of, of institutional racism that has always gone on in this country? Like, why does that look that way for most black households? Well, 
I don't want to insult any professors who have a PhD on this, and it's not my position to do this without the proper data. Yes, you're, you're correct when it comes to institutional racism to some extent because a traditional family was able to, um, uh, you know, have a good job or put in work, go buy a home. Their home was their equity, so they got a loan for the home. And banks have been known to for from from years to not be not lend people of color money as easily, or if they lent them pe uh, money of uh, people of color money, it was at a much higher interest rate. That then reduces the potential amount of equity you can have in your home, and then hopefully you would retire. Um, and for, and then also, even when you were making the money you're making 30, 40% less than a white counterpart. So you're starting off making 30, 40% less than a counterpart. You're paying more interest on it and you're not getting loans. So a lot of times you're cashed out. And I think that that is right there, the institutional racism that has existed in our country. It, uh, it was, and you um, don't build equity after that. No, and it was another interesting thing that I read and uh, was talking about the GI Bill, right? Which was a way a lot of... Um, white Americans were able to buy homes yep. and the GI because of the institutional racism, black soldiers were not allowed the same opportunities. I did not know that. Yeah. So it's this entire generation of our people who were not able to purchase homes. So as you said, if the home is supposed to be the building point of this equity and generational wealth, a lot of us didn't get that. No, and, and I think that's where it starts. I mean, you know, and, if, and, uh, and also you don't have financial intelligence. Now, because prior to our generation or, you know, the generation before us, we didn't have uncles and aunts who understood financial intelligence from the 30s and or whatever and set up trust funds and things of that nature to give us that information. And people that of other colors who may have, they have an uncle and aunt, a grandfather, a grandmother who set up boards and trust funds and stuff like that. So if you add all those components together... It creates exactly what we're talking about here, which is sad. Um, and I was not aware of the 10 cents per dollar, and that is shocking to me. That's yeah. shocking. And I always talk about financial intelligence. Because remember, school is not going to teach you about financial intelligence. School will never teach you that. The reason why the education system can't teach you financial intelligence is because they want you to be able to go out and take a three hundred dollars or $400,000 loan at 17 or 18 years old to continue an education that you don't necessarily know you want. So why would they ever give you financial intelligence to help you not take loans? So white, black, yellow, or green, we're not going to get financial intelligence in school. So unless you have that from somebody that uh, you know grew up in your family or your predecessors to give you that information, where are you going to get it from? Mm. Has your idea of success, like how has it changed like over the years? Like what does success look like to you now? Success to me now looks like uh, the number one shark on the show with the number one product, so all the other sharks are beneath me. Um, you stay talking shit about them. <laughs> I love it. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, success when I was young was uh, making a million dollars or two million dollars when I had nothing, and I realized that making that money, unless you have an end goal for it, you end up not having anything. So it's like if, I get, if somebody listening right now says, I want a million dollars. Right. What are you going to do when you get it? That part, <laughs> right? You're going to buy one Bugatti? You're going to buy, <laughs> right. you know, 10 Mercedes? It, can that get you one? I mean, like, I don't even know if it can get you one. Yeah, yeah maybe not, right? I use one probably. Uh, you're going to live off of $30,000 a year and go live on an island and live for 10 years at $300,000 and put $700,000 away in some Airbnbs where you're going to make money and then you're going to just sit there shucking coconuts and saving turtles. What are you going to do? Right? It's almost like, what do you do when you get to the finish line? What are you going to do? And most people don't know. And I didn't know either when I was a kid what I was going to do um, if I made money. And my first million dollars went like that. So this is going to sound probably to the people listening like the most um, new money, just just an off perspective to have. But a million dollars, you realize when you get it, it's really actually not that much money. Zero. It's not. And I was like, I know people are like, what the fuck are you? No, I'm telling you, it's Here's not that dollars. much. Here's a million dollars for you. Pay taxes on it. Now mm -hmm. you got 600000 <laughs> Yep. Right? You pay off your house if you have one. And not a big house. 
$200,000 house. That's not crazy, right? Nope. You got $400,000 left. Your credit cards, if you really look at all of them, they're going to add up to $50,000, right? So now you got what? Four, uh, you got four fifty dollars left? No, no, $200,000. No, you got three fifty dollars left, right? You didn't take care of mom yet. You didn't buy that car. You didn't do any of that stuff yet. Oh, side pieces. You got to take care of the <laughs> side pieces. You got to have a budget for that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if, mm -hmm. you, if you're a piece of, piece of poopy, <laughs> you take your side pieces. <laughs> okay. So you got a side piece budget? And yes, yes. You know, what, or maybe, maybe your girl and you it, know what? That butt's been drooping for a long time. You need you to buy a brand new ass, right? I mean, a brand new ass can cost you fifty, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. Or you might have to upgrade the significant other, period. You know what I'm saying? It could be they not, they don't want to see something. Of course, you're going to make some side investments with some friends who ain't shit. Pookie, <laughs> Pookie went to open the modeling agency. <laughs> right. And you always thought that Pookie had an eye for models. You're done. <laughs> yeah. It's like not a lot. You, you just realize like, wow. Um, at, look, when I was uh, growing up, I thought my picture of success was making $50,000 a year. Now, yeah, yeah 50000 That would have been a, when I was growing up, same thing. Yeah. $50,000 was like You warm. made it. That's Ooh. it. Yeah. That's it. Because when I graduated from college, the average salary of a professional journalist was $19,000 a year. And yes, I still chose to do this anyway. But because never, you loved it. Because I loved it. And I try to tell younger people that if you love it, you'll make money at it because you'll be passionate about it. Yeah. You'll be driven. You'll want to, you know, you'll want to grind in a different way. And yeah. thankfully, I've never made 19000 I made twenty two, <laughs> and I thought I was rich. There you go. <laughs> and but you're right. Like once you get to that point, and so that's why I asked you what success looks like to you now. But 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 I want to make sure that we don't depress people and say the million dollars is nothing, right? Because yeah, I'm not saying don't take a million dollars if you get it. I'm right, not saying that. If you get a million dollars the right way, mm -hmm. right? If you got a million dollars, you stayed humble. Like I, you know, I, I've seen a lot of NBA and uh, a lot of athletes who. Yeah, and the stat is that 65% of them after they leave the league are bankrupt three years outside. But I've seen also guys who've been bench players or whatever become multimillionaires because they still live with their mother mm -hmm. and they put money to work. You know, you go and buy, like, I, you know, one of my favorite stocks I love to buy is Shopify, S-H-O-P. And everybody, when, when, if you don't know what that is, when you go and open up a store online, it's called Shopify, right? You know, I you, have a store on Shopify. Okay, cool. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I do that is because if retail is going away and every single person becoming an influencer or whatever the case is, and they're all buying digitally on their phones, you buy Shopify. I bought Shopify at $28. It's $440 now, the stock. I wish you would have had my number. That was three, <laughs> that was three years ago. And I'm telling you right now. In three years it's done that? Yeah. I'm Holy telling you right shit. now, that, that stock's going to go to 1500 Right? Think about if you had a million dollars. There it is. And, and, and go into something that you love, right? That you know. You know, I love investing in companies that I know that if it went away, it would disrupt the world. Uber is at its lowest right now. It's not going away. And if Uber went away, it would disrupt the world. It's at its lowest price right now. Go buy Uber. If Instagram went away, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. If Amazon went away, it's going to hurt. But if you had a million dollars after you pay your $400,000 on taxes and then you put $600,000 in that, when it grows, if you don't take it out before a year, then it's called capital gains. If you take it out right away... Let's say you made a dollar today, and if you take it out before a year is over, you're under a regular tax bracket, 40%, 50%. But if you wait for one year after, you're under what we call capital gains. It's only 20%. So when you learn how finance work and tools work like that, you can make a lot of money. Tony Robbins talks about a guy who was born in 1930. The number one job, the, the most paying job he ever had, because he was uh, damn near a slave for a while. The highest paying job he had was a UPS worker at in 1980, something like that. Black. When he died, he left $80 million. Because he invested in Coca-Cola and all these little things. When he had his $2, his $7, his $9. So if you're listening right now, open up a TD Ameritrade account. Put in $4, put in $7, put in $9. And watch how it grows or it, it, it goes away. But if it goes away, there's also losses that you can write off on on what you've made. Mm. So is, is I mean, does monetary, a certain amount of monetary success, is that something, you, like, you want to be a billionaire? Are those things you have now? Or I don't no? have any monetary success okay. ideas. Mm -hmm. I do not, no. I don't want to be a billionaire. I mean, what would I do with a billion dollars? 
I don't know. Ask Warren Buffett. That's your boy. <laughs> you trying to give I, I it wouldn't know what to do with it. it. Really? I really wouldn't know what to do. I would like to find out just to see to make sure I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I really would have no idea what to do with a billion dollars. I really wouldn't. Mm. So for you, what kind of gives you when it comes to business and everything that you're doing? Like, what's your, where's your enjoyment coming from? Where's your passion coming from? My enjoyment is coming from new businesses I invest in that, like Bombas. And I'm, uh, um, the, what I think I've learned most from Bomba Socks is when I went into the show, I went into the show to not get clothing companies because I had 10 clothing companies and eight of them were dead. The last thing I wanted was a clothing company. But when I Bomba Socks, every pair of socks that you buy, they we give away a pair to the homeless. And what, you want to, what I learned from there is that uh, social causes are really great for when you have companies. Because Bombas is going to do really going to do some serious numbers. But more importantly, they gave away almost twenty five million pairs of socks to those in need. And I also what, what I also what what else did I realize? The consumer today doesn't care about you giving at the end of the year. The consumer says, and they say this around the dinner table, the water cooler Monday morning. Hey, how much you gave in charitable goods this year? I don't know, but because every time I bought something, I help somebody. When I bought this, I helped clean up the ocean. When I bought this, I helped stop human trafficking. And what did I learn from that? I apply it to my other businesses. So, you know, it's like learning. Like, I love to learn in business. I Trust me, I know I need money. I'm not up here sounding like no goddamn hippie. I need money, right? So I love to make money. Um, but I love to make money because of the freedom it provides me. The freedom it provides me to write books, Right to travel the world, to be able to provide and make sure that if something happens to my family, more than likely I'm okay to make sure that I can, you know, give them the best medical and stuff like that. You know, um, you had maybe one of the hottest political takes I think I've heard. You said that uh, you thought that Kim Kardashian was going to be president someday. I'm not sure how many Kardashians will be president. Oh, it's not just one. <laughs> Kim for sure. Kim for sure. Okay. Kim's going to be president. So. If she decides. If she decides. Assuming, so why do you think she will be president? Well, I think that right now would, uh, she picks up her cell phone, she could hit 200 million people. I think that whether it's Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump, when people see Somebody, they get very comfortable with somebody in their living room every day. They are more apt to want to root for them. I think that Kim started off with the whole thing with Donald and getting that woman, you know, released from prison. Mm -hmm. And then she's going back to law school. Mm -hmm. She's going to law school. I think that around the world, you know, or the country, people can relate to her because she has every component. Um, Interracial marriage. LGBT is in her family. Female. She doesn't drink. She does, you know, a lot of these other things. She's already played in the political field in some way or another. I think there's no question in my mind that in eight years, she probably will be able to reach 600 million people with her cell phone. Um, And I think that. I think that she could be president and people will laugh at me. But, you know, when I first started working with the Kardashians and I walked them all around my neighborhood in, in uh, Manhattan and talked, to, I, was, I was getting all their clothes for them sponsorship. It was $75,000 a year for all the girls to wear a whole brand the whole year, every show. Everybody laughed at me. I was like, okay, that's why year one and two. You'll see them all wearing Kooji, my brand Kooji, because I said, Kim, uh, Chloe, and you know, and Courtney, I don't, uh, nobody believes in you. Um, I'll just, I'll just pay you. They're like, all right, no problem. So uh, you know, I, I, I and, and and that's what's in my book, Powership, because even Chris is in my book. Chris Jenner is in my book. There's a certain thing that you see, and I have always seen in various different people that they know how to shift power, and they shift from every industry they go into. Diddy. Started off as a dancer. Then all of a sudden he's a producer. Then he owns a record label. Then he shifts over to being a clothing mogul. Then he shifts over to becoming a spirits and wine uh, mogul and also a television star. It's hard enough to be in each lane. How do you get to the top of every category? Same thing with Magic Johnson. Same thing with Pitbull. Same thing with uh, the Kardashians. And I'm telling you now, Kim will be president if she decides to go. Mm. Um, I personally think 
the the person who be like if we had to pick somebody from the entertainment to be the you know that would eventually be in the Oval Office, I'd say The Rock. I think The Rock is. I be think pre- so too. I think The Rock. I is agree be with president. you. I hundred yeah. percent agree with like you. Likeability factor. Um, as you and the fact and that he's, and we're twinsies. I mean, we look the same. <laughs> That's what I believe in. That you know what I'm saying, <laughs> right? Got, so I, your I, twin I be, is gonna make I'm it. I'm trying to do the odd thing. Yeah, I I have not had anything to drink today, so I'm sure if I did, then I, maybe I can see the resemblance. <laughs> but but now the Rocky has the likability. Um, you know, the ethnic background. I don't know a single person that dislikes the Rock. I don't know one. Like, you're, you're right. You're I don't right. know anybody I who dislikes totally like that. Totally. Totally agree with you, and I'm going to use that it's in all yours. some of my other interviews. I'm going to give you credit. Yeah, you can I'm going to give you credit the first two. Okay, and then and after, after that, that it I'm going yeah. this whole shit. You're I gonna totally be like, agree. Yeah, <laughs> just forget about me. That's after all that. me. That's all me. That's interesting though that you you saw that in the Kardashians that you you saw them becoming this cultural you know phenomenon that that they become. Other than Kim, that you said more than one Kardashian. You see Chloe. I'm not sure because, you know, the, the generational gap between her and Kylie and Kendall are, you know, you never know where it's going to be. But again, you know, you know, not overburdening the, the, the fact that I say power shift, but, you know, when they weren't anybody from what today's standards are, who they are, I saw that they built the influence at a very, very young age. And so did uh, Chris, you know. And that's why when I walked them through the doors and the people didn't understand, I didn't understand. I was like, are you crazy? But absolutely. I, you know, and, and, and I just think that uh, I think that they're, they're a force to be reckoned with and they're not going to stop. And they're true to their brand. So how um, when the recession hit, how did you survive? Um, well, we feel it earlier than everybody else in the clothing, clothing industry because. When you can't pay uh, your mortgage, the last thing you're doing is buying clothes. You wear that same shirt 400 times. So we started feeling it in 06, 07. Um, and at that time, FUBU was already taking its downturn uh, you know, domestically. We were growing it internationally. So we were kind of prepared for it. But, you know, listen, when you have to co- go from 300 people to 150 people as a staff, it hurts. You know, um, and we prepared for it by doing those things. We, uh, out of the 10 brands we own, we slowed down on seven of them. And we kept Kuji, Tonic, and um, FUBU going, um, shrunk down and got a smaller imprint, smaller office. You know what I mean? Um, I had already just had went through a divorce, so I, the houses were all gone. And I had actually made a lot of money off of those things. And then some people call me up and told me about some crappy show called shark tank and i was like eh, whatever and they were like you're gonna come on the show and spend your own money and i was like you motherfuckers in hollywood are pimps you guys are crazy why would i spend my own money i'm supposed to be a tv star now you're supposed to pay me they were like no you're gonna spend your own money i was like what did to like um to come to the show like to put yourself no up? no 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 oh, they pay oh. for they pay for the stupid ass <laughs> to travel ticket. Okay. Right. you know what i mean but I spent seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in investments yeah. that year, and the first year it was crap. <laughs> I lost it. Yeah. Um, but why did I do the show? Number one, I said I was I was only getting pitched clothing companies um, at prior to that because of course they they hold all of us in a uh, pigeonhole us in a box, and I said um, to maximize my time when I go to Macy's, I want to take up more real estate, so I want to be able to say here's clothing, here's plates. Here's cosmetics. Here's electronics. I already know the buyer. So we can build off our relationship. All right, I'll go on the show. Um, and that crappy show turned out to be uh, something that would change my life and change many other people's lives. So was there a point early on where you where you felt that it was a hit? Because even though initially you came into it thinking, like, this is going to be nothing. But at what point did you realize the show was a hit? Year five. It took that long for you to realize that. <laughs> well, for the first three years, it was it, they the uh, they were considering canceling the show for the first three years in a row. So it couldn't be a hit if every year they were like, I don't know, we're going to renew it. And but the the show history has shown in every territory it's been in year three or year four it hits because what happened was when we were on the show, we go to promote it, and they were like, first of all. I don't know who a Damon John is, so I don't want him on the show, right? We were nobodies, and Mark Burnett said, well, I'm not going to put celebrities on the show because the real American viewers watching the show will never believe 
that these people are rolling up their sleeves and helping the entrepreneurs if they're an athlete or a singer. Nothing wrong with that, but they got their own career. Like, how can Taylor Swift help somebody with a sponge company if she's on tour? So he stuck to his guns, and we stayed on the show. Then all of a sudden, Mark Cuban comes on the show. Mark Cuban then can walk on Jay Leno and talk about the show. Then people started to say, well, are you in the tank with sharks? Are you cleaning the tank? <laughs> Who gets the money? Who wins? You know, like, we couldn't describe the show. But after about three years, people started, all these small entrepreneurs who started to be having good companies would go out to local markets and be like, no, 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 I got the money. Damon John Barber's working with me, whatever the case is, and here's who my... And it was almost like viral, but it took years. Why do you think the show resonates, though, with so many people? The show resonates with people because prior to the show, when would you ever know what millionaires and billionaires would ask you when you're pitching yourself or a company, number one? Right, we we we've given America a vernacular that's only been in boardrooms before. Now, a little kid, nine years old, can tell you what royalties are, what margins are, what's your distribution, what are your sales. You're dead to me, you know. Like we've given the show uh, the the American public a vernacular that they can speak about. Also, you know what it shows. You can sit on your couch talking about all that crap about you don't want to, you can't do it because all you need is this, all you need is that. But you will see somebody walk up on that damn show on that carpet uh, who, and you'll cl complain about your color, your race, your religion. You'll see somebody up there walk up there that looks just like you who has zero. And you will see them get off their ass and they will end up having a successful company. And you'll say, I can do it too. Yeah, it's a very aspirational show. And that's why it works. Um, as I told you, I do have some fun questions for you. All right. So um, it's a game I like to play with all my guests before I let them go. It's called This or That. This or That. This or That. So you got two choices. Pick one. Very you important. You sound like my mother when you say that to me. <laughs> very important. All right. Uh, I need love or hey, lover. Oh, 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 no, no, no. I need love. 100%. Were you about to say hey, yo L man get in the pool baby? <laughs> that was the video. That was <laughs> when he was in the jacuzzi. Yep. <laughs> Though hate lover is so funny when you listen to the words back now. You're like, damn, that's some dirty Mac and L. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it, it's a challenge to me. It's a challenge yeah. because I need love was like the one I really loved. Hey love, I loved, and he had Fubu one in that one. But if I have to think about it from taking taking myself taking out of the it, business part out of this. Hey, yo, L, man, get in the pool, baby. <laughs> uh, cornbread or Cheddar Bay Biscuits? Cheddar Bay Biscuits. <laughs> Damn Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuits right. all day. That's right. So what age were you a waiter there? I was a waiter at Red Lobster from 18 to 20, and then I returned, and I was a waiter there from 23 to 28. Did you... Just gorge on Cheddar Bay Biscuits. I, know, I ate everything. <laughs> I ate everything in there. <laughs> there, uh, All you can eat crab. Sneaky good. Sneaky good. I would go to Red Lobster like in present day. I still go to Red Lobster. You still go to Red Lobster? I still I just, go to Red Lobster. I'm not even mad. Don't even be ashamed of that. Like, I'm not. I go hard on that. Um, Rihanna or Beyonce? Ooh. I saw B last night. That's such a not so humble brag. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't. J and B had a party, and B was dancing. Okay, you were in the vicinity. I'm sure I you was, know them though. I, I know. Yes, it was, I'm a little um, bit. Okay. No, that's a tough. You know what? Um, mm, well, what are we talking about? Songs? <laughs> are we talking about light looks? Or I mean, Rihanna or Beyonce? Well, I mean. <laughs> Okay, if I, if Rihanna, I say if, music. If I, if I caught myself when I sing the most songs, mm -hmm. when I hear it on the radio, Rihanna. Mm. Okay. Yeah. If, I, if I talk about drooling. <laughs> you say Beyonce more. <laughs> you say nothing. Man. I'm not going to talk about another man's wife. How dare you? That's right. Good, good policy to have. Um, and finally, Pac or Biggie? Pac has more, a larger body of work. It's a good deciding factor. See, you survived just fine. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't bad. See, it wasn't that hard. I mean, that you know, bad. now we know you drew over Beyonce. Hey, well, get in the pool, baby. <laughs> Watch that video. I love that song because when people, um, you know, I, I know that there was a story written about you know Drake sort of being the architect of the the sing song rapper. Like, 
It was no a way. guy named LL. Wasn't well, didn't L do also in that video? He was like, yo, you like me? She was like, yeah. He was like, cool. He did that too. I think something like that. Yo, he did do something like that. L the best. Yes, he he built a cottage industry on on hip hop love songs. So. Um, Damon, thank you so much for coming, dropping by, spending a little time with me, sharing your story, and for all those listening, make sure that you buy his new book. You should have bought his old book, so you can just go through the whole catalog, right? But his new book, Power Shift, coming out in March. Um, but yeah, thank you for being just so inspirational with well, everything I, that you do. I, I really and sincerely appreciate it. A lot of tough questions, a lot of things I haven't shared with other people. And uh, that makes you me make feel me good. feel relaxed that I can share this with everybody. And Thank I you. don't feel bad now that I said that a million dollars ain't shit. Thank you for, like, that was a safe place for me to say that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so Damon's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment Fuck It, I'm Bothered. One of the biggest stories in the last week or so, and certainly one of the most widely watched videos already of 2020, was the footage that circulated of a male airline passenger repeatedly hitting the back seat of the woman in front of him because she dared to recline her seat. And fuck it, I am so bothered by this story on so many levels. This viral video created a massive, and I do mean a massive debate about the appropriateness of reclining your seat on a plane. Now, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know that shit was even a debate. I have learned recently that proper etiquette is to ask the person behind you if you can recline. Wait a minute. Let me rewind that back. On a seat that you pay for, which comes with a reclining option, you're supposed to ask permission to recline your seat. So look over there. Nuh-uh, to the right. Because right over there is where y'all can take that bullshit. I've heard all the counter arguments. It's about courtesy. What about the tall people? You have to think about someone other than yourself. It's not just about your comfort. So I got to be on a flight sitting upright like I'm at attention for somebody else? Nah, playboy. Nah, playgirl. I'm not asking permission. And I don't expect someone to ask me for permission either. But either way, America, we all focused on the wrong shit. See, we're arguing with each other when the people who should be getting cussed out is these soulless ass airlines who are packing customers in these planes like we weren't born with both arms and legs. But they could give less than a fuck. The CEO of Delta, Ed Bastian, weighed in on this debate and he said while passengers have the right to recline, they should ask the person behind them before they do. Oh, hell no. Nah. That dude has some nerve. We're basically in each other's lap giving each other lap dances on these flights because there's so little room. We up on these planes stuck in these medium-ass seats. Got us crammed up on these airplanes like broke-ass sardines. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> let me be honest, y'all. Um, they got y'all on these planes squeezed tight like skinny jeans that was in the dryer a little too long because a sister been in first class for a minute. I ain't been a coach since Obama's last term. Thoughts and prayers to you peasants. Stay unbothered. Mel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 